0: The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, making peace with the past. Thank you, Jim. It really is a privilege and an honor to be with you tonight. Jim asked, um, how do I do all the things I do? Well, um, God has blessed us with an incredible team. Um, that's part of it. God is blessed with an incredible wife and family, and God has um, blessed us with a marvelous church family. So I just love to equip the saints, and then we do the work of the ministry together, and um, when everybody does a little, then nobody has to do a lot. And um, so I'm delighted for the privilege of serving as a pastor. It is a dream come true for me. And um, then I'm delighted for the privilege of um, being able to come to conferences like this, And you know, it never ceases to amaze me that people would come to a conference like this. And um, I often, on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, get the privilege of standing before groups like this, and it just amazes me. Um, you're not here because um, you're going to be able to make more money as a result of the uh, training that you receive here. And so I assume that you're here because you want to serve Christ more effectively and because you want to have... A, Um, a a better, more effective impact on the lives of those that God brings to you. And so um, I have to believe that honors God, um, that you would take the time to invest in a conference like this. I have to believe that honors his son, and um, I'm looking forward to a a marvelous time, along with the other speakers, of um, just thinking a lot about Christ, thinking a lot about his word, and I'm thinking about how we can um, mutually edify one another, so that we can serve him more effectively in the days ahead. As Jim said, I've been asked to uh, do these two plenary speakers on the topic of um, putting your past in its place or how to handle the past biblically. And maybe we ought to just start by asking the question, well, why in the world would that be important? Of everything that we could talk about in a counseling conference in the world in which we live, why would the issue of what we do with our past, um, why would that? Uh, fit into this uh, subject matter. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of reasons. Uh, One of them is because um, uh, the world is placing major emphasis here. Would that be true? It's amazing how frequently when somebody is having some sort of a problem, someone has um, taken a a step that even the world would condemn, uh, that um, people want to talk about, well, that must be because of that person's past. It illustrate that in all sorts of ways. Here's a couple of quick ones. You remember the Menendez trial that happened out in um, this part of the world. And um, you remember that case, I, I imagine, where you have two um, young men who had grown up in the lap of luxury. They had it all. Uh, they went into their elderly parents' homes. Uh, their er- elderly mom and dad were sitting on a love seat. They went in with semi-automatic weapons just blew their parents away, reloaded, and did it again. Well, of course, their plea was not guilty. You, you couldn't hold a person like that responsible for a crime like that. So, so their plea was not guilty on the basis of what? That they suggested that they were um, acting in self-defense. That, that, that was their position. They were acting in self-defense, and they weren't saying, uh, that what happened, they went to visit their elderly parents, and their elderly father got up and started beating the fire out of them, and thankfully they had their semi-automatic weapons with them, and so they backed up and they, they, they blew their dad and their mom away before their father could continue to abuse them at that moment. That was not the argument. The argument was that they had been abused in the past, And because they had been abused in the past, they could not be held responsible for the decisions they made on that particular day. You say, well, that's bad. (laughs) I haven't told you the worst part. What was the result of the first Menendez trial? It was a hung jury. Twelve people could not bring themselves to actually suggest that those two young men, whether they had been abused in the past or not, that's not the, the question right now. Those 12 young men could not bring, or those 12 people could not bring themselves to say that those two young men should be held responsible for the choices that they made on that particular day. Now, thankfully, when that um, case was retried, they were convicted, but the fact that it went that far, it tells you something about how many people in our culture seem to take the position that um, the past is everything. And if you have something that has happened bad in your past, you are absolved from any responsibility for the choices that you make today. And by the way, if you're asking me now, now, are you taking a position on whether the Menendez boys were were abused or not? Absolutely not. And I'm not going to minimize uh, abuse in any way, shape, or form. Frankly, I and people like me spend a ton of time. That working with people who have been abused in the past. And we um, weep with those who weep as we rejoice with those who rejoice. So I am not in any way, shape, or form minimizing that. And I'm quite certain in a group this size that we have persons who have all sorts of stories of ways that you have suffered in the past that would bring our entire group to tears. And I would never, ever, ever in any setting, want to minimize that. So I'm not taking a position on whether or not the Menendez boys were abused. I would say this: whether they were abused or not, that does not absolve them from responsibility for the choices that they made today. And, and anybody who would say, "Well, you're treating them in a mean-spirited fashion, I would say, no, I'm not. I'm treating them like human beings, human beings who were made in the image of God. They're, they're not dogs. They're not just programmed by the events that took place in their past. They're human beings who were made in the image of God and therefore can think rationally and make wise choices regardless of what happened in their past. But, but the world is just emphasizing this everywhere. Take Roseanne Barr. Please, take Roseanne Barr. Roseanne says that the reason she smokes five packs of cigarettes a day, the reason she um, cusses like a sailor and drinks like a fish it's not her fault. It's not her responsibility. She can't change, she suggests, because she was abused in the past. Never mind the fact that her parents vehemently deny that to this day. Never mind the fact that Roseanne did not remember the abuse until she got into therapy. Roseanne's position is that she cannot change. That's, that's a powerful statement. She cannot change, she cannot be held responsible for the choices she's making today because of something that happened to her in her past. Now, same argument. I, I'm not taking a position on whether or not she was or she wasn't. But I'm saying it's incredibly hopeless to, to hold on to the, the, the world's notion that, that because of certain things that have happened to you in your past, you can't change. You can't do what God wants you to do today. But, but our culture has just bought into that hook, line, and sinker. We, we had a couple of young men in our neck of the woods in the Midwest, for crying out loud. We're not talking about crazy place. I'm talking about the, the Midwest. And um, sorry, that didn't come out just right. But, but anyway, um, a couple of young men um, graduated from high school, and um, they didn't want to become successful the old-fashioned way, namely, um, well, going to college and then getting a job and working hard and earning money and then saving it. They have, that's like going to take way too much time for these two guys. So what they decided to do right after high school graduation, one night they went down to their neighbor's house and they um, uh, robbed him, stole a gun, stole his car, and headed out west. And and so these two young men, any time they needed gasoline in their stolen car, they just pulled it off the interstate. They they robbed whatever convenience store was there, whatever gas station was there. They got right back on the interstate. They weren't even smart enough to, to vary their route. And so after a couple of those um, robberies, the police pretty much had a pretty good idea uh, uh, of where they would stop next, and so they set up an ambush. So these two young men um, pulled their stolen car off the interstate at the next place, and They saw the policeman there, so they jumped back on the interstate. Now they're driving that stolen car at a high rate of speed. You've got a number of police cars chasing them at a high rate of speed. One of the young men driving the stolen car as fast as he possibly can. The other guy from our town rolls down the passenger side window, slides himself up on the passenger side door, points the stolen rifle back at the first police car, pulls the trigger, it's a perfect shot, it goes right through the windshield and hits that trooper right between the eyes. Uh, ushering that young trooper into eternity and leaving his young wife without a husband and their, their little baby without a father. Now, what was fascinating to me was that within the next couple of days, the mother of the young boy who pulled the trigger actually went on our local radio stations. And here's what she said. She said, you have to understand, my son is not a bad boy. He he just had a rough childhood. Now now think about that. My my son is not a bad boy. He he just had a a, a, The problem is his past. The the past is everything. And when I heard that, one of my responses was, what would a person have to do in this culture before we would just decide, you're a bad boy? And it doesn't matter what happened in your past. You are, that was bad. It was wrong. You are a bad boy. And I also thought this, and I know it makes me sound like an old guy, but frankly, I qualify. Um, what would a person in this culture, or, or, or how much has changed in this culture in one generation on that point? Because my mama had no trouble calling me a bad boy. You know, and I never shot anybody. Except that time with the BB gun and my sister. But she, she had it coming. But anyway, I, I, my mama called me a bad boy all the time. And it wasn't for big, just little stuff. Like if I was messing around at the table and I knocked my glass of milk over, bam, I'm a bad boy. No, no question about that. And, and it never dawned on me to blame what I had just done on my mom. Well, see, the, the, the reason that I knocked my a uh, glass of milk over there, Mom, that's your fault because you fed me cereal in a square bowl when I was younger, not around. But I mean, it never dawned on me to, to somehow blame that on my past. My mama, by the way, had a cure. I don't know if you can even say this in public anymore, but, but my mama had a cure for me being a bad boy, and she applied it liberally to my backside. That was the, the nature of our relationship. I did bad things, and she spanked me on the bottom. That just the way it was. Never thought about blaming it on my path. Never thought about trying to get out of the spanking. I mean, I did bad stuff. She sent me back to parent purgatory. I went back there in my go to your room, and that, that's what I did. And then she came in. Have you thought about it? Bam, bam. And that's just the way it was. I never thought about trying to get out of it. I only got up one spanking my whole life. And that's when I was back in parent purgatory, and I saw a little picture book, and I had a bright idea. I took that picture book, and I, I, I put it in the back of my pants. And I thought, that is going to um, shield the blows. And then when I bent over, my mama started laughing so hard. When she saw the outline of the book, she couldn't bring herself to actually spanking me. But, but other than that one time, I mean, but, but I'm just simply saying, we need to talk about this because the world in which we live would seem to have or take the position that the past is everything and it is entirely bad. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, I would suggest that, that many in the biblical counseling world, the, the, the conservative counseling world, the Christian counseling world, w- would seem to be on the other side of that. In many cases, you hear practically nothing on the topic of the past, and it would seem like some would have the, the position that, well, the past is nothing. We, we don't talk about that. That doesn't have a place in the counseling process. That's not going to be emphasized. We're not even going to deal with that. So, so you've got these two extremes. The, the past is everything or the past is nothing. And, and then I know that this will resonate with many of you here because many of you are already doing counseling. And you know this. We are working with people who have all sorts of um, terrible events from their past have been abused in all sorts of terrible ways, have all sorts of negative experience, have suffered it in significant ways. And so you, you scratch your head and you ask yourself, no, who's right? Is it the past is everything or is it the past is nothing? Should I be spending no time on those events in the counseling room? Should I be spending lots of time on those events in the counseling room? It's a very important question. And if you're going to be involved in counseling people who are hurting, it's not going to be long at all until you just have to think that through. In fact, for those of you who are counseling, you might want to just think down through your counseling load right now. And just ask yourself what percentage of the amount of time you spent with each one of those counselees has dealt with the past? None? A, a lot? And, and, and however you would answer, why is that the case? So at some point, this isn't just a, a, a spitting match between this person or that person. This it, it, is real life. We have to be sure we have a, a solid set of answers to this question because. It's going to come up in counseling in all sorts of ways. Well, ultimately, the question is what does the Bible say? It's not a matter of what does Dr. So and so say or what does that person say or what is that person doing. Ultimately, the question is what does the Word of God say? I assume I'm looking at a group of people who believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. You believe that God has entrusted us in His Word all that we need um, for life and godliness. I just had a, a, a case that I've just started. Um, I had the second session on uh, Monday night with this dear couple, and um, they're hurting badly. They're hurting badly, but we were able to talk about some of the things that they had implemented already as a result of our first session and some of the ways that the Word of God was already helping them. And I, I, I walked away that evening saying this in my heart, God, thank you for making me a biblical counselor. And and thank you for giving us a sufficient word, and thank you for giving us a sufficient Savior. So I'm assuming I'm looking at a group of people who are all about the sufficiency of the Scripture. And so uh, the question before the house is, well, what does the Bible, if anything, have to say uh, uh, about this subject? And, And I would suggest to you this, if that is our question, the Bible says a ton. The Bible says a lot about the past, and part of the emphasis is that your past is very, very powerful. I'm going to try to um, disassemble in the next couple of minutes the view that the past is nothing. I don't think you can take that position if we're going to let the Word of God be our guide. But what is, at least what is surprising to me, because what I set out to do, I set out to try to build a biblical theology of the past, and so I didn't go into that study with a set of preconceived notions that I was going to try to uh, somehow prove with some biblical illustration. I just wanted to ask ask and answer this question for myself. And What I found was the Bible says that the uh, past is very powerful. However, many times when it takes that position, it's talking about your past being powerfully good. Friends, your past can be one of your best friends. You realize God created us uh, with the ability to have a past. He created you with the ability to remember. He created time in a linear fashion. He had to do all sorts of unique things in his creation in order for us even to have a past. And when God does something, he does it for good reasons. So your past can be one of your best friends. You say, well, how would that be? Let me just throw out some um, biblical illustrations of how that is the case. One is when you need strength and courage. Do you realize the way that God has strengthened you in the past can be part of what gives you strength and courage today? You draw on what you've learned about God in the past. You remember this, don't you? Um, Ugly Goliath kept coming out and and, and taunting the the, the armies of the living God. And um, young David's father said to him, hey, go, go check on the battle." Take this to the king, take this to your older brothers, and see how the battle is going, David's daddy said. So David did what his his daddy went, what his daddy asked, and he got there. There wasn't a whole lot of battling going on at all. All that was going on was ugly Goliath was coming out, and he had that little test going on. Let's not bother with all of us fighting. You just have a one-on-one thing, me and one of your people. We just figured out with just that mechanism. And no, Israelite wanted to fight Goliath, of course. And so David comes up, and he actually sees and hears Goliath making that taunt. He's like, hey, who's going to go out and fight that guy? <laughs> Everybody's kind of embarrassed about that. There's big Saul. Why was it that Saul was chosen in part? Because he was so big, you'd think he'd go out and fight Goliath. There's David's older brothers. They're so big, they're, they're older, you think they would go out and and fight Goliath. None of them would go. None of them would go. Said, I'll go. <laughs> I'll go and fight that, that uncircumcised Philistine for crying out loud. We got God. <laughs> Why had somebody going out there and letting God slay that giant? You, you remember what happened, right? Saul pats him on one side of the head. You can't really do that. Uh, Eliab pats him on the other side of the head and then insults him. Hey, hey, why don't you go back to the wilderness and care for those few sheep you have, he says. Right? Well, it was time for David to to introduce Saul and introduce Eliab uh, to one of his best friends. Who was that? His past. That's exactly what David did in that moment. And he said to Saul and he said to his brothers and he said to everybody else who was there, let me tell you something. There's times when I've been watching the sheep and, and a bear has come along and tried to uh, take one of my sheep, and God helped me defeat that bear. And there's been times when a lion come and, and, and would try to steal the sheep, and God would help me defeat that lion. And the same God who has delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion will deliver me from the hand of that uncircumcised Philistine. Welcome to That's How Your Past Can Be Your Best Friend. And see, that's why it's wrong for us to, to let the world impact us where we always think about our past in, in entirely negative terminology as if it would be better if we didn't have one or if it has no benefit for us at all. That is simply not true. Here's another one. It's when you need encouragement and balance. Some of us have this view with God that it's, what have you done for me lately? You haven't blessed me in the last five minutes. You're probably not very good You remember this, don't you? Job went through that terrible set of trials with his honey, and then his wife had some counsel for him. You remember that? Now, I really believe most of the time men ought to listen to their honeys, but every so often they shouldn't. And here's a really good example. Do you remember what Job's wife said to Job? You ought to curse God and die. What did Job do at that moment? He reminded his honey of one of their best friends, their their past. And here's what he said. He said, shall we receive good at the hand of God when? When? In the past and not the evil that we're experiencing today. In other words, we have to balance whatever challenges or trials that we're facing today in light of all of the ways our good God has been good to us in the past. Your past can be one of your best friends. Here's another one, when you need to forgive. Have you been in that situation recently where somebody sinned against you and maybe they disappointed you greatly, maybe they, they harmed you greatly, and then they came and asked your forgiveness? Now, some people are unwilling to forgive. Why? Because they've not benefited from one of their potential best friends, their past. Isn't that the point of Matthew 18? After the important chapter on, or after the important discussion about church discipline, but then you have that marvelous parable that Jesus ta- tells about forgiveness. And what happened? You got a guy who owes his king. His master ten thousand talents, the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars, and he's told to pay up. And he says, "No, no, please be patient with me until I repay all of it." Ridiculous! He could have never done that in a hundred lifetimes, and yet the king did what? The master forgave him. You know the story. And then servant number one went and found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Hundred denarii, a day's wage. And I think we make a mistake, by the way, when we say, well, that was just 100 pennies. <laughs> no, it was 100 days' wages, so about a third of a year's worth of wages. I don't know what that would be in your economy, 10000 20000 whatever it would be. I know this. If you owed me that much money, I'd want it. Okay, can we just get that straight? That, that, that's enough money I would want. It. So it's not that it was a paltry sum. It's that it was a paltry sum in comparison to how much he had already be, been forgiven by his master. And you know the story. The second servant says the same thing. Have patience with me till I repay you all. The first servant will not do that. He grabs the guy by the throat, throws him in prison and all that. What was wrong with that guy? The answer is he didn't benefit from his past. And was the master upset about that when he found out? He was, like, way upset about that. And why is it that some of us are not as forgiving as we ought to be? Because we've not let the past be the friend that God designed it to be. Here's one more. Your past can be your friend when you're struggling with pride. I'll talk to you, Lord willing, tomorrow night about not wallowing in the past. But here's an interesting verse, I think. It's Deuteronomy 9 7, where Moses said, Remember and do not forget how you provoked God in the wilderness. Do you hear that twice in that verse? Remember and do not forget. How you provoked God in the wilderness. And when you and I are struggling with pride, we can benefit from the times we failed in the past and let our past be our friend. Now, here's the other side of it, though. The Bible would also teach us that your past can be one of your worst enemies. If you do not handle your past well, events in the past that are, that are not handled well can impact you in all sorts of negative ways. Let me just throw out a few. When you have unanswered questions. In other words, when you have some sort of a period episode of suffering in your life and you naturally have questions about God, you naturally have questions about his world, you naturally have questions about the people around you, but you have wrongly believed that it's disrespectful to ask questions of God, and that then becomes part of your path that can impact you in a negative way. God designed that to allow you to learn that truth, and if you didn't, it is going to impact you improperly. Here's an example of that. When's the last time you thought about Habakkuk? Here's Habakkuk. You remember how that book begins? Habakkuk, right in the very beginning of the book, essentially is complaining to God. If that's not complaining, it's awful close. So what is up with you allowing your people to be so evil? And he starts talking about how the the, the children of God, the people that he's supposed to be a prophet to, are living in all sorts of evil fashions, and Habakkuk raises his questions to his God. And you never have uh, the the, um, indication that God is dissatisfied or upset with Habakkuk's questions at all. In fact, he answered the questions, didn't he? He said, Habakkuk, thank you very much for raising that. You're right. My people are living in sin, and I'm about to judge them. I'm going to deal with that just like you were saying I should. With the Babylonians, I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge my people. What did Habakkuk say next? Another round of complaints. What? You can't use the wicked Babylonians? And I'm just simply saying that's authenticity. Authenticity. When you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you have questions you don't have answers for, you ought to point your head to heaven. You ought to grab your Bible and seek to find answers for them. I like this quote from a commentator on Habakkuk who said this about that. God is the friend of the honest doubter who dares to talk to God rather than about him. Prayer that includes an element of questioning God may be a means of increasing one's faith Expressing doubts and crying out about unfair situations in the universe show one's trust in God and one's confidence that God should and does have an answer to humanity's insoluble problems. I agree with that. And I think that if we do not suffer well, if we do not handle those kinds of challenges properly, that becomes part of our path that's going to constantly haunt us you may or may not agree with that. I understand that. But, but, but here's one I'm sure you're going to agree with. It's when we make unwise choices. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, when? In what becomes his past, that shall he also reap, when? Now or in the days ahead. You make choices that displease God. It's going to come back and bite you. Is there anybody here in this room who say I've never experienced that one time? Though your past was one of your worst enemies in that particular moment. Here's another one, unaddressed hurts. And I would encourage you just for sake of time to jot down Psalm 42, 3 to 5. We're going to talk some more tomorrow night, Lord willing, about sufferology. But but that passage talks about uh, the importance of crying out to God when we're hurting and learning truth about him when we're suffering. But if we have the position that there's something wrong with that or big boys don't cry or just rub some dirt on it or whatever it is, that's going to become a negative part of our past. Here's another one, unsolved problems. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, don't let, be angry and sin that. don't let the sun go down upon your wrath and don't give your enemy, the devil, a foothold. What's that mean? We were taught it this way. Many of us uh, do not go to bed angry. And some of us have violated that. And as a result, we've let the sun go down on our wrath, and we have given the enemy a foothold. And that's why some of these marriage problems become so big. That's why problems in churches become so big. Why? Because it becomes a part of that past and that relationship, and it just festers, and, and that's why my mentor taught me. Problems are like guppies. You can either solve the two you've got today, or you can solve the thousand you're going to have next week. They, they just multiply so rapidly. Don't let unsolved problems become part of your past Unconfessed sin. Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his sin, and when? And what becomes part of your past shall not prosper today and in the days ahead. Here's one more. Uh, Jim asked you a moment ago if you had had your supper. Here's a great after-supper verse. It's Proverbs 26, 11. Remember this verse? This is about unlearned lessons from the past. Proverbs 26, 11, as the dog... Remember it? It's in the Bible. Don't fuss at me. As the dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Don't fuss at me. That's right in the Bible. But we've all seen a dog do that, haven't we? It throws up, which is bad enough, in the front yard, and then it goes and eats it. Like, oh, yuck, yuck. You are such a dog. But haven't we all done that same thing? We get in a situation and we do the wrong thing and we don't learn the lesson and we do it over and over and over again. Your past can be one of your worst enemies. I'm trying to make the case here that those who would say that um, the past is nothing, boy, not if the Word of God is going to be our guide. Not if the Word of God is going to be our guide. Now, because we have those kind of illustrations and because of what we're going to talk about next, I think we can also say with confidence and joy, you can learn to put your past in its place. If God made us this way, then we can learn to to, to handle our past and to handle our past well. But if we're going to do that, this is an important point that kind of lays out much of what I would like to talk to you about for the rest of tonight and tomorrow. We have to understand that our past is not one big lump. We have to organize our past in the same categories that the Word of God uses. You cannot view your past as if it's all one big lump. Let me try to illustrate that. My sister and I, um, I I have two sisters, one who's 10 months younger than me and one who's 10 years younger than me. I've always thought what that means is my mom liked having me so much she immediately wanted to have another child. It took her 10 years to get over my sister. But, but anyway, you can decide what you think about it. But anyway, that, that, so, so I went off to Bible College in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, which is up in the northeastern corner of the state, up in the mountains. And then the next year, my, my sister Sharon was a freshman when I was a sophomore. My sophomore year, I also took a car back. And so I had a car there. and Sharon and I spent the first semester together. And then at, at Thanksgiving, we were going to drive from um, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, all the way back to our home in Gary, Indiana, which was about 700 miles for Thanksgiving break. And so um, we jumped in the car the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, right after chapel, and we were making headway. It was me and my sister Sharon. We had some girl from Toledo in the, in the backseat, and I mean, we were just flying. The Bible does say the king's business requires haste, right? And so we were flying, no question about that, and um, we were coming down. I'm um, a particular interstate. And in Pennsylvania, I mean, some of those hills, they're so steep that you've got guardrails and you can't even see over the guardrail. And so we're flying down one of those, going, I'm not going to say how fast, but we, we were going. And, and I said to my sister, hey, um, let's switch drivers. Now, you understand what that means, right? Um, switch drivers. I, I don't mean let's, uh, I was getting tired, so, so I wanted to switch with her. I didn't mean let's pull over at the next exit and, and, and stop the car and switch. That would take way too much time. Please tell me I'm not the only person in this room who has actually switched while we're driving. Because, so, so anyway, they, we used to do it all the time. I did it with my roommate all the time. It worked fine. I'd never done it with my sister, but for crying a lot anybody can do it. So, so we're driving down the, the interstate, and the, the way it works, you understand how this works, right? Yeah, yeah, the the driver is driving just normal, and then the, the person is going to switch, which comes right up next to him. And then you kind of, it's a little tricky right now at this point. You've got to kind of, the driver has to sit, uh, stand up a little bit on his feet. You're still operating the pedals and, and using the wheel, but you've got to just move up a little bit. And then she slides under you, so at that point you are sitting on her lap. Then it's a little tricky right then because then you have to transition the steering wheel over. And I found it's often best if you slide over and then transition the pedals. And so that's what we are going to do. And, and so we were at that point where, where, where I was up, she was under me, and at that very point we hit a bump. And um, my knee hit the steering wheel, which caused that car to go in three complete revolutions. On the third revolution, it actually smacked the guardrail. Only um, an angel from God kept it from going over. What it did instead was it launched the, the car back into the interstate and it was perpendicular across the two lanes, which was a problem because there was a semi that was following us and um, by God's grace, he was able to get his semi stopped. He came to help us. He actually asked us what had happened and I did not have the presence of mind to lie and, and so he was really upset at me, but, but anyway, anyway. We, we, we got the car, turned back around, and amazingly, it actually still drove, and so I drove it home and um, had to explain to my father how it was my sister's fault, and I got all that done, but the, the reason I tell you that story is that to the picture of this car now, I had a multifaceted problem. I had body damage, I had engine trouble, I had transmission problems, and the biggest mistake I could have made was taking that car to one guy to try to fix that, all of those problems. I needed the body guy to deal with the body work. I needed an engine guy, a different guy with a different set of skills, different set of principles to deal with the engine problems. And I needed a third guy to deal with the transmission. I had a multifaceted problem that needed multifaceted principles from multifaceted experts. I'm suggesting to you that's also true of your past. Your past is not one big lump. Your past has a number of different facets to it, and it has to be viewed biblically. It has to be viewed systematically. It has to be viewed uh, specifically so that you can apply the right principles to the right aspects of your past. So, so how do you organize it? That, then, if you agree with that, your past can't be viewed like one big lump, then how do you organize it? I would suggest you have to ask a couple of clarifying questions. for this particular event that, that is troubling you, that, that bothers you, you don't think has been put to rest, Are we talking about an event initiated by your own sin or by the sin of another person or maybe just living in a sin-cursed world? Those are two entirely different kinds of events. Are we talking about an event from your guilty past, you started it, or your innocent past, someone else sinned against you? Two entirely different kinds of events. And if you try to handle them in exactly the same way, it's going to be confusing. There's a second clarifying question. Now, how did you respond to what occurred? Whether it was a situation that you initiated it, once it happened, what did you do next? Or if it was a situation that someone else initiated it, how did you respond? That actually brings us to four different categories. And I'm not saying you can only have four. But it's helped me in my counseling to organize the events from my counselee's lives in these four categories or buckets. I'm probably the only guy old enough to remember um, the grand prize game at the end of the Bozo show. Remember that where you'd get a, a ball, you'd have six buckets, and you'd go boom, and you'd have to organize. You'd have to uh, put a, a ping pong ball in a different bucket. Or if you're not from that generation, think of Harry Potter sorting, sorting hat. We're talking about taking events from a person's life and organizing them biblically. What are the possible buckets? So in what occurred, you were either innocent or you were guilty, and you either responded well or you responded poorly. Now, let's go a little further. So some events fit there. Your innocent past, where you responded well. Somebody sinned against you, and by God's grace, you handled it properly. However, I would suggest that this next category is entirely different because you also have times where somebody sinned against you. You didn't start it. Your innocent Past, but you responded poorly. You weren't responsible for what they did to you, but you were certainly responsible for how or what you did next. See, many of our counselees, they get that all confused as if that's one category, that's one lump. It's not. It's not. There's also the guilty past. You just messed up. You started it, and you know you started it. But at least when you were called on it, you responded properly, praise God. However, some of us have events where we started it, and when we were confronted about it, we sinned some more. It's totally different kind of events. Now, uh, there's a lot there on the table. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you four stories from the Bible. You'll recognize these. And I want to ask you just to work with somebody sitting around you and and take these four stories from the Bible and assign them to the proper bucket. You ready for this? So here's the four stories that we're talking about. Um, One is Achan. Do you remember Achan in Joshua 7? You remember that story? Uh, where he um, stole from the plunder, and then he hid it under his tent. That's Achan and Joshua 7. The second example is Paul and his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. You would agree with me, wouldn't you, that those are two, both in their past, but two different kind of events. So you've got Achan and Joshua 7. You've got Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Then let's throw in Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? You want me to break out in a song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He was one evil guy, huh? And then here's the fourth one, fascinating story in the Bible, in the book of Ruth, Naomi. You remember Naomi? Naomi, who would be Ruth's mother-in-law. Remember her? Now, just take a minute, work with the people sitting around you, and try to decide... Which one of these four buckets does each one of those events fit into? And then we'll come back together and see how you did. So off you go. All right, all right, all right. Let's see how we did. Let's talk about um, bucket number one. Who do you think of the four that I gave you would fit into the category of the innocent past? In other words, they didn't start it. It's not because of their sin. And everything that we know about that situation would suggest that they handled it well. Who would that be? Yeah, that would be Paul and his thorn in the flesh. Now, he was authentic about it. He cried out to God how many times? Three times and asked God to remove that thorn. Anything wrong with that? No, that's authenticity. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But because he handled it so authentically... That gave him an opportunity to hear from the Lord that, no, Paul, it's not best for you to have the thorn removed. What's best for you is to learn more about my sufficient grace, which is why Paul, in a fresh way, then could make the declaration that I will um, rejoice in uh, my infirmities so that the power of God may work through me. And so everything that we know about that situation would um, fit into bucket number one. However who fits into bucket number two? Yeah, Naomi. Is Naomi in the book of Ruth the same as Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? Would we make a dramatic mistake if we treated people who were that different as if it was all the same? Oh, absolutely. Think about Naomi. And by the way, I think that narratives, you you understand, a substantial percentage of our Bible is comprised of narratives. And even today, our world loves stories. They love narratives. And I would just suggest to you that let's be sure that we don't um, fail to use narratives in our counseling. And this is, the book of Ruth is a great counseling book for sure. You remember the story, right? There's a famine in Bethlehem, and so... Naomi's husband um, takes her to uh, Moab to try to find grain, and so along with their two sons. And so during that period of time, um, the sons marry, and then Naomi's husband dies, and the two sons die. And so the only people who are left is Naomi, the, the Jewish woman, and these two Moabitess daughter-in-laws, one of whom was... Um, Uh, Ruth, now you remember that story, it's fascinating, we're still in chapter 1, but what does Naomi say at that time? She says to her two Moabitess daughter-in-laws, she says, go back to your people, and if you check the text, go back to your people and to your gods. That's an incredible statement of lack of faith in that particular situation, which is why Ruth said, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, your people are my people, and your God is my god by the way i 'm always intrigued when young couples want to use that at a wedding. I have to tell them, do you realize that the groom dies that, that, that i 'm not sure i 'm not sure how I would feel if my wife wanted to spout that one off on the wedding day, but, but anyway, anyway um, so so then so, so now, Naomi and Ruth go back to Bethlehem, huge symbolism there perhaps Bethlehem the house of bread and you remember what happens when they enter the city Naomi's friends say to her aren't you Naomi why wouldn't they recognize her I I think this and I don't know how to say it nicely so I'll just say it straight bitterness makes you ugly you could buy cosmetics on a 55 gallon drum but if you've got a, a root of bitterness spring up in your heart, it will defile you and it will defile many. That, that's what the book of Hebrews tells us. And, and it's interesting. So they don't even they're not even sure it's her. What's amazing is what Ruth says next. I'm sorry, what Naomi says next. Don't call me Naomi, call me call me Mara, the Hebrew word for bitterness. And, and then, then she says, God sent me out full. Say what? It was a famine? God sent me out full, and he's brought me back empty. Hello? Who's standing right next to her? Ruth, an incredible provision of God who's going to be the instrument of incredible provision in her life. But what Naomi says is, the word that defines me is my bitterness. Just call me that. Now, call me Mara. Here's what I believe. Some of our counselees, they think they're living in bucket number one, and the fact of the matter is they're living in bucket two. They weren't responsible for what happened to them, but they have the view that if someone else started it, then they're absolved from anything that they did next. And I think this is where biblical counseling can shine, and and it requires the wisdom of Solomon, does it not, to know the exact time to make that transition? of helping our counselees begin to understand their responsibility in the matter. You can rush that. You can do it harshly and lose that ministry opportunity. But there has to be a transition. If they're in bucket number two, someone has to love them enough to point that out or they will die in their bitterness. Now, who's in bucket number three? Yeah, Zacchaeus. I mean, Zacchaeus was one wicked dude for sure. Uh, But when he came to faith in Christ, what happened? He immediately took responsibility, and he immediately offered to make restitution for what he did. How about bucket number four? That's Achan. Totally different than Zacchaeus, because when he was confronted with what he did wrong, he sinned additionally. And I'm simply saying that as we think about helping our counselees deal with their past, I believe God's word has principles that would fit in each one of those categories, don't you? No question about that. But if you get that crossed up, we're not going to help people. And I also believe this. I believe God is a very precise God. And I believe the Bible is a very specific book. And I believe as we're helping people who are struggling with the past, we have to help them organize their past in categories that the Scripture would outline. Now, what I want to do, set that aside if you would, please, mentally. We're going to come back to that Lord willing tomorrow night. But, but I would like to do two more things before our time is gone. I'd like you to, to open your Bible to Romans chapter 6 and set that aside. And I want to tell you, A story of one of my counselees, Um, the name is going to be changed to protect her identity. However, everything else that I tell you about her story is true and it's being used with her permission. And I want to ask you to think about now, where would she fit into this conceptualization that we're trying to um, assemble in these sessions you may want to. It's up to you. You may want to jot some notes down because the story gets a bit convoluted, but I think it will be helpful as we think about um, just how does this really fit together with real-life counseling. Let's call this woman Jill. And Jill was a married woman. She was in her late 30s. She had two children. Um, when Jill came to me for counseling, she said that she was a believer in Jesus Christ. She and her husband and their children faithfully attended a very, Good Bible believing church. Jill's testimony there, though, was that she had suffered from severe depression. She had struggled, she said, with depression most of her life. She had had a recent medical workup. She had been in inpatient therapy for depression numerous times. She had taken all sorts of different psychotropic drugs and combinations of various psychotropic drugs. But by her own admission, she wasn't getting any better. In fact, she was to the place now, she would say it this way, where she was afraid of her depression. She came to see me in the spring of the year. We had just gone through a pretty rough winter in Indiana, and she said, if I don't find some help for this, different than what I've received up to this point, I don't think I'll be alive a year from now. I think I'll take my life before I go through another winter like the one that we just had Uh, still in my depression. So so here's the question. Could Jill's past have anything to do with what she's experiencing today? And should we make it an emphasis in the counseling room? And and if so, to, to what degree? And if so, how would we make her past an emphasis in the counseling room? Because let's face it, some, perhaps many, Perhaps many more than ever before would say, no, just address this biologically. And so let's find someone who can prescribe another combination of drugs. Or let's try brighter lights in the wintertime, or just whatever it might be. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't physiological issues involved in a story like this. There's a lot about the Bible we don't know. But in this case, she had already had all that. She would had a full medical workup. She had been on all the drugs. And I don't know if this is your experience, but it certainly is true for us in Lafayette at our church's counseling center. We have, a, we have a counseling center that is available to people in our community. And the, the average person who comes to see us for help, we are not the first stop, we're the last. So by then they've already been to um, the, the persons, they've been on the drugs, they may still be on the drugs. And they're obviously not coming to us to report that all that worked really well. And there's a side of me that actually likes being the last stop because we don't have to argue about the efficacy of some of those other issues. It's a non-issue, and frankly, I'm very glad that it is. So what does that mean for a person like Jill? And the answer is we have a lot more work to do. And I believe this is where biblical counseling can especially shine. Because let's face it, for many people who follow a purely biological model, why are they doing that? In part, it's because of the pressure of the managed health care system. You talk to the average physician about how much time he actually has to spend with one of his patients, and he's going to answer that question in terms of minutes and many times using a single digit. And I'm not here to, I'm not here to fuss about that. I'm just saying that is the reality of all of that. Well, biblical counselors have a distinct advantage. We're not in it for the money. And we're planning to spend hours and hours and hours with our counselees over an extended period of time because that's how we understand the counseling process to work. Jesus spent time with people. Paul spent time with people. There's no substitute for that. There's no shortcut for that. So for Jill, I asked her to write out a history of her depression. What were the key events? Who were the key people? Describe her attempts to change. I like to use journals like that. Maybe you do too. And there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is I have found that I can read and assimilate something that has been written by a counselee about ten times as fast as I can listen to it. Now, I do both, but I think that having counselees write out stories like that can be an incredibly efficient use of time. Also, it puts our counselees in a position where they have to answer something in an orderly fashion. That doesn't always happen when they just answer something verbally. It also gives you a good idea not just of the facts, but also the way the counselee has processed those facts. Now, here's some of the things that Jill wrote in her journal that we reviewed the following week as part of her homework. We're in week two now. Here's some of the things she wrote down. My parents divorced when I was seven months old. Think about that for a minute. My biological father seldom spent time with me, only at Christmas and my birthday and whenever he felt like it, which wasn't very often. She told me my mom remarried and my stepfather began sexually molesting me at age 10. She said, I told my mother and she refused to believe me. She said, my stepfather said it was a dream. She also reported, my mother signed me over as a ward of the state at age 15 because she said I was incorrigible. She said, my stepfather continued to molest me sexually on home visits. She said, I was eventually at a state children's home. Nobody would take me. She also told me this. Once I called my mother from the state home, and she told me she was going to Florida with my stepfather. And I said, you can't go to Florida with the problem. And she said, you're the problem. You're the one who laid there and let him do it. Now, I also asked her to write about some of the times that she struggled with depression now as an adult. Her mom, by this point, had divorced a stepfather, so the abusive stepfather was out of the picture. But as unbelievable as it sounded to me, her biological father was now back in her life. They even attended the same church. But she struggled greatly whenever he didn't show her the attention she thought she deserved. In fact, that was true not just for her biological father, but for many people in the church. And she didn't describe it this way, but for her, she would go into the church foyer almost like one of these news trucks that have all kinds of radar screens all over the place. And it was almost like looking around for who is going to approve me. Who is going to say something nice about my outfit? Who is going to say something nice about my hair? Who is going to greet me in a friendly way, etc., etc.? And if they gave her attention and approval, she was ecstatic. If they didn't, she was depressed. Now, a couple of observations I would just tell you about that story she told. Even though she had told me on her intake forms that she was a Christian. And even though she actually had a fairly credible profession of faith from the perspective of being able to describe her decision to repent and believe, she told me the whole story of her depression without ever mentioning Christ. I often ask my counselees in the first session to give me a Reader's Digest condensed version of their life. It's amazing how many people say they're Christians but tell you their whole life story and never mention the name of God. Never mention Jesus when telling their story. I would also say this, just about what I've said so far. Addressing that biologically alone would be irresponsible. Now it doesn't stop there. Others might look at a story like this and focus on all sorts of activities and duties. And say, we have to get somebody like Jill doing right. So we have to give her all sorts of homework. We have to start having her do her ironing, cleaning her house, etc., etc., you realize that could actually be dangerous? Because for a person like Jill, she very well could start doing all sorts of things in order to gain your approval or in order to gain God's approval. Well, what's the alternative? I would suggest that one possible answer is to help Jill place the appropriate amount of attention on her past to organize her past into biblical categories and then to handle the unfinished business in her past with generous helpings of various aspects of the sustaining gospel. say, what do you mean by that? Let's read a little bit in Romans chapter 6 now. We're going to get this started tonight, and we'll do a lot more work on it, Lord willing, tomorrow. Look for emphasis here on the sustaining gospel. Where's Jesus? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Notice the impact on the marvelous and powerful doctrine of our union with Christ. In places like verse 3, baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. Verse 4, buried with him. Verse 4, so that as Christ was raised, we too might walk in the newness of life. Verse 5, if we have become united with him, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We can walk down through that entire text, through even past the verses that I read, and see that emphasis over and over and over, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And what I'm suggesting to you tonight is Jill had none of that in her heart. For her, Jesus was someone who saved her in the past and would someday take her to heaven in the future. But now in the here and now, she was on her own. She was on her own. It's back to the law. It's back to works. Jesus was nowhere to be found. And so she defined her existence by the way others had abused her, the way others were treating her now. Her joy, her satisfaction, her hope are wrapped up in her performance, her ability to please other people, to receive their approval. She also had this multiple-level loathing going on, loathing herself for not being able to meet everybody's expectations, loathing others because they didn't give her all the love and approval she desperately craved. She loathed her mother She loathed her stepfather. She loathed her biological father. And the living Christ was nowhere to be found. And his imputed righteousness was nowhere in the picture. And that led to multiple conversations with Jill that sounded like this. What does it mean that Christ has initiated a relationship with you where he'll never leave you or forsake you? What does it mean that Christ has adopted you into his family, not because of your works, but purely by his grace? What does it mean that your relationship with God is so secure that the words no condemnation could be used to summarize it? What does it mean that you've died to sin's power, that you've been raised to a new life in Christ? What does it mean that he is in you and you are in him? And friends, that sounded like a foreign language to Jill. Jill knew nothing about the sustaining gospel, and Jill did not have the ability to organize her past well. But she said, if I don't get a handle on this, a year from now I will not be here because I will take her life. That's what I want to talk to you about tomorrow night. Is God's Word powerful enough to take a person who has a history of depression as long as your arm and actually help her put her past in her place? Thank you very much. Copyright 2014, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.